Welcome to the 12th episode of Coronavirus the Truth, a podcast that focuses on the facts surrounding COVID-19. I'm Jeremy Kaur, host of the Popular New Books in Medicine podcast and CEO of Executive Podcast Solutions. With me is Dr. Robert Pearl. For 18 years, Robert led the Permanente Medical Group, the nation's largest physician group, and was responsible for the healthcare of over 5 million Kaiser Permanente members on both the East and West Coast. He's a healthcare contributor at Forbes.com, a best-selling author and professor at both the Stanford University School of Medicine and Business. Together, we also host the Hit Fixing Healthcare podcast. You can find this episode along with helpful fact-based information on our website, fixinghealthcarepodcast.com. Robbie, each week we begin the show with the most recent and relevant facts concerning the COVID-19 pandemic and its impact on American life. What should our listeners know about the week that was? Jeremy, it's hard to believe that we began this weekly podcast almost three months ago. On one hand, so much has happened, and on the other hand, there's still so much that we do not know about this virus. As we predicted in our podcast last week, the total number of deaths did pass 100,000, and the media made it headline news. But as we pointed out last week, it should not have been. Although this loss of life is terribly tragic, it was completely predictable. What wasn't predicted was the differential impact the coronavirus has had on different socioeconomic groups, and particularly the horrific effect it has had on African Americans. Let's plan to go back to this theme today and put it into context for listeners. My fear is that even after a vaccine is here, this problem will continue to infect our nation long after the coronavirus has been contained. Over the past week, our country began to reopen. The good news is that the number of cases appears to be stable or even declining. Of course, we can't be exactly sure for two reasons. The first is how limited our testing for coronavirus in this nation remains. And the second is the number of infected people who are asymptomatic and never get tested. As such as possible, and despite the data so far, that the exponential growth in the number of cases may have already begun, and we will see a rise in hospitalization deaths three to four weeks from now, but so far, people are cautiously optimistic. Now, when scientists are provided with new information, they consider the implications, formulate questions, and create hypotheses. Along with our listeners, let's consider what the lack of increase in the number of cases, despite the reopening of beaches, stores, and restaurants, means. Could it mean the virus has mutated to a less dangerous form? The answer is no. Based on the most recent genetic research, like all viruses, this one has taken on a variety of forms, but all are relatively similar with equivalent lethality. Is it possible that this virus isn't as transmissible as people had assumed? Remember from earlier shows that scientists have estimated the R0 of the coronavirus to be around 2.7, meaning that one infected person under normal social circumstances will give it to almost three others. 
That's more than double the flu. Again, it's unlikely that we misestimated the transmissibility given how the three-day rate of doubling occurred one or two months ago. The best conclusion is that the combination of the new social normal combined with a small but growing population immunity is responsible for keeping the R0 at or below one. And our success should dictate the future, at least until there's a vaccine. The first part is the new social norm that people wear masks around large numbers of other people and keep six feet away from them when walking past. The second change is that people have become more knowledgeable about the virus and they are self-quarantining themselves when they develop symptoms, at least until they are tested. Finally, the number of people who have had the disease and recovered has increased in specific areas like Seattle, Silicon Valley, and New York City. As such, as many as 20% of the population in some geographies may have had the infection and produced protecting antibodies. When I put the pieces all together, the preliminary data is showing that masks, six-foot distancing, and testing have the power to diminish the r naught approximately in half. That alone would take it from 2.7 down to around 1.3. And if 20% of the population has been infected and has protective antibodies, that would drop it by another half point in total under 1.0. What's so crucial about this is it creates a roadmap going forward. When combined with continuing to eliminate crowds at arena events, indoor conferences and bars, the types of activities and places that rapidly raise the effect of R0, as we saw in New Orleans from the Mardi Gras and in Boston after a large technology meeting, it says that we can theoretically control this virus, not through extreme measures, but moderate ones. It says that by taking these precautions, we can open schools, small businesses, and restaurants more quickly than today. Denmark, Austria, Norway, Finland, Singapore, Australia, New Zealand, and most of the countries have already reopened their classrooms and they haven't had an outbreak in schools or daycare centers when following these precautions. It's a middle road. Asking people to quarantine at home for the next year is too much to ask. Requiring them to wear a mask at Costco or on a subway, I do not believe that's too much to ask. I think it's reasonable and appropriate. And for listeners who want more details on how we can reopen safely, they can check out an article I published in Forbes last week that puts all of these hypotheses in the context of the Pareto Principle, the so-called 80-20 rule. Robbie, let's go back to the theme you mentioned in your weekly review the differential impact the coronavirus has had by race and income. Uh, We've seen demonstrations across the country after the murder of George Floyd. Do you see a connection? Jeremy, I do. The demonstrations and violence we are seeing in cities across this country are like a river with multiple sources coming together in powerful ways. The first source, of course, is the death itself. It's hard to watch the video, 
without your stomach turning. Regardless of your political viewpoint, it's impossible to justify the actions of these officers. For listener context, I have a cousin and a neighbor who have both served for decades as police officers. They are incredibly dedicated people who have risked their lives to protect communities. They represent the overwhelming majority of police officers. But in every profession, there are people who misuse their position and misuse their power. This was an inexcusable, preventable death with multiple opportunities to have avoided it. The individuals who killed Mr. Floyd were clearly at fault. But of course, this death goes way beyond Minneapolis. Because across the United States consistently, the recipients of these inappropriate police actions are African-Americans. And when that happens, the issue is no longer fewer individuals, but more systemic problems, including racism. And that connects to the coronavirus. Last week, we discussed the relative risk of dying from the coronavirus and pointed out that it has a direct correlation with race and income. For blacks, mortality is twice as high as for whites. And for individuals in the bottom quartile of income, their chances of dying is double what it is for people earning twice as much. It's hard to see your family members and your friends dying and knowing that if their skin were a different color or they lived in a wealthier zip code, there'd be a 50% chance they'd still be alive. And in places like Minnesota, in Minneapolis, these two factors are directly connected. There, the average black family earns half of the average white family. And furthermore, the medical implications extend way beyond the coronavirus. Take heart disease. This is the number one killer in the United States with 655,000 annual deaths, more than six times coronavirus to date, and probably three times beyond the numbers that we'll see once 12 months of the pandemic have passed. A study published this week in JAMA found that for people aged 35 to 65, that those with lower socioeconomic status have double the chance of dying from heart attack than those of higher economic status. Moreover, the traditional medical risk factors that they experience, he's only explained 40% of the difference with social ones accounting for 60%. That includes racism, prejudice, and fear of violence. Once again, watching loved ones die from factors beyond their control feels unfair. We've seen this in the coronavirus. Those with lower paying jobs haven't had the ability to work from home. Instead, they've had to take buses and subways, leading to higher rates of coronavirus infection and death. And when multiple generations live in one house and grandpa has diabetes and mild heart disease, he can't avoid getting exposed when his sons and daughters return at night. Knowing you contribute to the death of someone you love but had no way to avoid doing so, generates what is called moral injury. 
Not only have socioeconomic factors contributed to worse medical outcomes, but they also have had disproportionately greater impact on blacks when it comes to the economic consequences of our nation's response to the coronavirus pandemic. According to research from the Kaiser Family Foundation, which is unrelated to Kaiser Permanente, almost half of all African-Americans, Latinos, and low-income Americans are having trouble paying their bills, nearly double the rate for the rest of the United States. As a consequence, 45% of blacks have reported having to either skip a meal or rely on charity for food due to the coronavirus financial impact. Let me repeat, 45% of black adults have reported skipping a meal or relying on charity. It's not surprising that we're seeing social unrest in the context of the coronavirus. It was just as predictable as the number of cases and the resulting deaths. A lot of the footage I have seen of these protests and riots in various cities show massive gatherings of people that are not social distancing, and many of them are not wearing masks. All politics aside, do you think we will see a massive spike in coronavirus cases uh, spread at these events? Jeremy, as we've stressed on this show, the coronavirus doesn't care about national boundaries or social issues. When people are in close proximity and some of them are infected, they will transmit the virus to others who are not wearing a mask. As such, we will see an increase in cases as a result of groups of people getting together during these protests. When problems are not addressed, whether in medicine or society, they fester and get worse. Recognition of what is happening is an essential first step. Unfortunately, when we get to this combination of socioeconomics, of racism, and of a viral infection, there are no easy solutions. Robbie, any updates on either the Moderna vaccine or the efficacy of remdesivir as a treatment for the coronavirus? Jeremy, as you know, I do not believe that for-profit driven companies have acted or are acting in the best interests of the health of Americans when it comes to the coronavirus. In fact, prior to the conversation, issues around pricing and drug promotion have plagued our country on a chronic basis. But when it comes to the coronavirus, in the context of developing the best national policy to avoid deaths while reopening our economy, the current lack of data and the potentially misleading statements about the efficacy of their products have put the lives and health of the U.S. at risk. We talked last week about the vaccine, but Dern has started to test. And the company's complete unwillingness to provide basic, vital, scientific details for review. What I found interesting was an article I read this week that five executives of the company, five very senior executives, have sold $89 million of their stock. This 
almost never happens when a blockbuster solution to a worldwide pandemic is only months away. Jay Clayton, the chairman of the Securities and Exchange Commission, has cautioned companies against selling stock during the coronavirus pandemic. He pointed out that there might be idiosyncratic circumstances that would lead executives to sell shares during the crisis. But doing so, he said, risks optical nightmare. And similarly, the initial data we discussed on remdesivir was finally published. And in the article, the authors pointed out that the high mortality that persists in patients receiving medication continues despite the administration of the drug. What was interesting to me was the timing of the informational release. It happened on the Friday before the Memorial Day weekend, a time when media experts know attention will be at its nadir. As we've discussed in previous shows, cures for the coronavirus won't be coming anytime soon. I hope what I just said is wrong, but with each passing week, the probability that it is accurate grows. Robbie, as you know, my sister is a minister at a church in Iowa. Many of her congregants want her to resume in-person services, or many are happy without having them resumed for a while. I know many churches are starting to resume uh, services with worship in the parking lot, uh, almost like drive-in movie style of social distancing. What advice do you have? Based on discussions with her, many of her congregants uh, miss the social aspects of the church the most, as the worship part is much easier to do remotely. Another thing that she said many pastors are wanting to know is, how do we know how long the virus will live on surfaces? Uh, if people are meeting only once a week, do things need to be deep cleaned and sanitized after service every week? Jeremy, I can't think of any issue that is more difficult than this one. Churches and synagogues are places of solace, inspiration, and social contact for tens of millions of Americans, particularly the elderly, who are simultaneously the ones at greatest risk of dying from the coronavirus. Your sister and thousands of pastors, ministers, and rabbis face this dilemma. The importance of these worship experiences is clear from how fast the issue of religious services has made it to the Supreme Court. The context was Governor Gavin Newsom's restriction on gatherings of this nature for religious institutions in California. One specific church asked the court to rule on the issue, feeling that the prohibitions on the number of attendees was a restriction of freedom of religion and therefore unconstitutional. The outcome was a five to four vote upholding the state's right to limit attendance with Chief Justice John Roberts joining the courts for liberal justices. Writing for the majority, he pointed out that the secular restrictions were even more rigid. He differentiated religious services from essential businesses by noting the relatively short time people spend buying food, but the much longer time they spend in houses of worship. The majority concluded, we're dealing here with a highly contagious and often fatal disease for which there presently is no known cure. 
For your sister, I'd suggest she consider opening her church, but in a very restrictive way. Split the services so the total number of attendees at any one service is relatively small. Make sure all wear masks. Given the greatest spread of the virus, when people are singing, plan for nine-foot distances between individuals. Speak with those at greatest risk based on their age and health status and consider placing them even farther apart, maybe in the balcony if the facility is so constructed. Continue transmitting the service through video as she is currently doing for all congregants wanting to reduce their risk. And offer as many virtual social events for people during the week. Isolation is a major health issue, and people have to decide how much risk they're willing to take in order to have close proximity to others. The loss of community can be as great as the advantages of physical distancing. Just as doctors have discovered that it may be better for people to use virtual tools for medical care, possibly religious leaders will find that some approaches using video are better, by which I mean more convenient and more frequent for the congregants. Bring enough people together in close proximity, and some at higher risk will die from the coronavirus who otherwise would not have. Do it in a responsible way with masks and six-foot spacing, and the danger drops significantly. My advice would be to take a middle course, being able to provide in a safe way the kinds of experiences people want. There's no need to thoroughly sanitize areas when individuals will be in them a week apart. The data is showing this virus does not live for very long and certainly no more than a day or two. And even that is moderately doubtful. But also think about ways to bringing people together even better than before the coronavirus by providing them from their homes the opportunity to interact with people from a variety of generations, in a variety of circumstances, in a variety of activities. In one of these shows soon, we'll talk about the post-coronavirus era, when we will have learned much, medically speaking, and I'm hopeful that we will have incorporated some of the best approaches that we had to embrace in response to the coronavirus, ones that will make our society even stronger. Another thing along the same lines as church is school. Many schools from elementary to college have ended for summer break. Um, I've heard many people extremely curious about what school will look like in the fall. Robbie, what do you think elementary, high school, and college will look like in the fall? Jeremy, I can't tell people what it will look like because that will be a complex set of decisions made for different reasons in a variety of communities. 
What I can tell them, at least based upon the experience in multiple other countries, is that schools can be opened safely, assuming we take these middle-of-the-road precautions. Everyone wearing masks. Scheduling the day so classes are smaller at any given time. Making sure the number of children at recess at any given moment allows to have six-foot distancing. Educating families about the symptoms from the coronavirus and making sure that parents are doubly and triply prepared to keep their children at home should they have symptoms at least until there is testing and to apply a lot of the same approaches to the faculty, which includes both the teachers and the individuals cleaning the sites. Schools, I believe, can open, returning us even closer towards the new normal. But if we're not careful, if we don't make sure we do the right things, we will find the transmission increasing, and we could find ourselves where communities have opened their schools and suddenly closed them. I think the seesawing back and forth is really problematic for individuals and for school systems. And I also believe that schools will have to figure out how to address those families who, for whatever reason, maybe the child has a congenital problem or an ongoing medical issue and needs to have accommodations made. The new normal will not be one size fits all, and it will be based upon the scientific principles that we have learned. We're often asked by listeners about getting reinfected after recovering from the coronavirus. What do we know about this possibility? Research from the Korea Centers for Disease Control and Prevention has helped address this concern. According to their work, although patients can continue to test positive for the virus, they are unlikely to be infectious. Despite a positive test, when scientists tried to culture the virus from these individuals, they were unable to do so. The interpretation is that the infected people retain some of the genetic material from the virus, which is what leads to the positive test, but it's not in a form that can give the disease to others, even family members coming in close contact. Moreover, from the same study, 96% of these individuals had neutralizing antibodies in the blood serum, indicating future immunity. This is a very positive study coming out of South Korea. Jeremy, let me ask you a two-part question. Some businesses are starting to monitor employees on a daily basis and even requiring them to be tested as a condition of working that day or week. How much do you believe 
most Americans will be willing to accept or, and put up with as a condition of working? I think that most Americans want to work. And if an employer required testing or temperature checking, I would be totally fine with that. I mean, as long as it's not super invasive, I think most people would be fine with that. So that leads to my second question, which is around the obligation of employers to do this. Should they be the ones accountable for public safety? And should they bear the costs of screening and testing? I do not think that businesses should be held accountable for public safety. Um, and I don't know how they could be expected, let alone required to bear the cost, especially as many small businesses are already struggling or on the verge of collapse. I think if it's something that is going to be required in any way, shape or form, I think the government needs to cover the costs. One of our listeners reached out to me and told me that they saw the article or they saw an article stating that the coronavirus has already mutated seven times. What do you know about this? And can you please explain how virus mutation works and what it means? For listeners, let me begin by talking about mutation. Understand that genetic material is an alphabet. It only has actually four letters, but it forms a series of words that create the instructions for the body to manufacture proteins that allow changes to happen, either in development or on a daily basis. So think about it as a chapter in a book, or think about each piece of the genetic material as a chapter in the book. A mutation is a change in the lettering. It can be a change in a single letter or two or three in an entire chapter, or it can be deletions and reinsertions of pages and pages of information. When it's the latter, there's a very significant change. And in fact, as the reader, you might not be able to understand what's going on, whereas eliminate a vowel or add a slightly different consonant and not much shifts. Every virus is always mutating. If the mutations are too severe, the virus can't replicate, it disappears. But most of the time, the replications are just duplicated again and again with the primary function of the virus continuing as it had. There've actually been over a hundred different mutations in the genetic makeup of the coronavirus. However, so far they've been relatively inconsequential. Now researchers and scientists are continuing to keep a close eye on this issue and theoretically it could mutate and become more lethal. On the other hand, it could mutate and become less likely to cause death. But so far, the changes have been equivalent to changing a letter or two in a given chapter and not of any great consequence. And listeners should remember that we're very fortunate that in the 21st century, we have the technology to rapidly and inexpensively do this type of genetic testing. So we will continue to be doing it simply as part of the research and work of the scientists around the globe. Robbie, 
On this show, you've made the analogy that responding to this virus is like a chess match with scripted opening moves, a strategic middle game, and a well-defined end game. How is the middle game going? The middle game is as much psychological as tactical. Stepping back from the day-to-day and week-to-week news and looking at the coronavirus today versus two months ago, we can see and learn much. As we just said, the virus is unchanged. It's just as transmissible and lethal as on day one. Yet, hospitals across the country are now doing elective procedures and doctors' offices are opening. People who two months ago were refusing to let anyone through their door are gathering with friends and airplanes are becoming fuller, often with middle seats occupied. Something is very different in how we're playing this middle game. It's interesting to try to understand how it happened. Is this coronavirus fatigue with denial? Is it a consequence of mathematics that can view 100,000 deaths as a huge number or recognize the fact that most people are unlikely to have a close friend or family member who died since with 300 million Americans, it would require 3,000 contacts to have one. And of course, the shift in behavior, despite the unchanged virus, could reflect the growing economic impact dominating medical fears or the impact of mental health concerns overcoming physical ones. My view is we're playing the middle game pretty well in the sense that we are moving towards this middle ground where we are getting 80% of the benefit by implementing 20% of the restrictions. By that, I mean that we are reducing the transmissibility below the R0 of 1 and seeing hospitalizations and deaths in most communities going down. And the price we're paying of wearing a mask and keeping six feet away and self-quarantining when we have symptoms and closing down massive arenas and major conferences is a relatively smaller price to pay for the benefit that we're getting. My biggest fear is that as a nation, we will make non-strategic decisions, either from ignorance or political considerations. I'd remind listeners that although there remains much that we don't know about the coronavirus, there's much more that we do know. And if we act on the 80% that's known, I believe we can continue to open our nation while saving lives. As a reminder to listeners, this episode is available on our website, fixinghealthcarepodcast.com, and on all podcast platforms, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. If you like the show, please rate it five stars and share it with your friends and family. To submit a question or comment to the hosts, please visit the contact page on our website or send us a message on Twitter, LinkedIn, or Facebook. Thank you very much for listening to Coronavirus The Truth and have a great day.